Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Rolo Slavsky, a.k.a. AKA Rurik Skywalker, ambassador for all Slavs, advocate for Slavic interests, who writes at slavlandchronicles.substack.com. Welcome to Geopolitics and Empire for the first time, Rurik. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, well, what happened actually was uh, Rolo quit. He was so frustrated with the quality of the Russia discourse that he just, he, he, he said, I've had enough, I'm quitting. And he handed over the blog to me, uh, Rurik, and um, so that's that's what happened, and uh, that's where we're at right now. So I'm a little bit more patient. Uh, you know, R Rolo was a prophet. I think everyone understands that he was a genius. He was ahead of his time. He was just like this amazing all-around person, perfect, flawless in every regard. I think, objectively speaking, and I'm not, you know, I have no bias here at all. You know, I'm just saying it how it is. I'm a little bit more modest uh, as a writer, and I'm trying to sort of ease people into seeing the conflict in a different way. And so I think that's the big difference between me and uh, Roloslavsky. May his memory live on forever. I hope that explains that to you. So. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, I came across your blog uh, early on your Substack, <laughs> and it's and it's very unique. You know, we, we chatted before on my TNT uh, show, and you're looking at things from a unique vantage point, uh, and I think on a number of issues we, we see eye to eye. Um, and, and so I wanted to get sort of your latest, you know, updated big picture view before looking into drilling into some of the details. Your big picture view on the grand globalist chessboard, as I like to call it, uh, you know, um, citing the late uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski. And, and is it really East versus West or is something else going on? You know, we, we've both interviewed folks like Yuri Roshka, the ex-Moldovan um, politician who sheds some light there. But, um, you know, your thoughts on, on what, what's going on right now in the world, uh, especially with, uh, you know, East, East versus West and this whole multipolarity um, talk. Well, there are elements of the agenda that I'm not expert on, and there are people who read the actual stuff that, that the stuff that these people put out. I'm more of like a historian in the sense that I try to figure out how we got here, and I try to read past documents and into past trends that brought us up to this point. And so, one of the main things I do is I analyze Soviet history and the real Soviet history. And it's uh, for most people, it's uh, it's very emotional and propaganda driven, uh, whether they're on the the east or the west side of the divide. But uh, objectively, if you look at what was really going on, you start seeing that there is this agenda which starts really uh, show, rearing its head, uh, which I, I call convergence, and that's the name that it was given by um, its its primary uh, proponents. And it's this idea of creating a one world elite, a one world government and about merging the elites of East and West. And to do that, you have to smooth over any ideological inconsistencies. And uh, you, you just have to do these, you have to create international organizations, conferences, you have to create a network of economic interdependence. You have to create a shared ideology, a shared worldview. You have to basically split the pie in some way that is amenable to most people. And that is basically what the agenda has been on higher levels. Uh, so the elite, I think, was not, uh, you know, people have a hard time understanding the tyranny of small differences or the fact that people 
can hate each other over small differences. So even within the elite, like I say that the Moscow elite is 99 or 95% in agreement with the Western elite on everything. And yet, yes, there is conflict between them. Uh, and you could point in history to say like that the battles between one royal family against another or within one royal family or like a, a, a civil war in some country. And with the gift of hindsight and some distance from the events where we can be unemotional, we look at it and we're like, these people pretty much all believe the same thing. Like they're all feudal lords. You know, they're, they're basically ideologically aligned. Uh, they're just sort of competing over who gets to be the boss or they're competing over a slice of the pie. Like they're, 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 it's like a company uh, competing with another company over who can squeeze out an extra percent of profit uh, in the cereal products line or something like that. That's the best way to conceptualize this. We are being told that it is an ideological like uh, a refutation or a rebuking of what the Western elites uh, are doing. So you know, that's the way that the narrative is driven for us, that it's this complete repudiation of SJWism or this whatever whatever this ideology is, like this woke communism globalism thing mostly they say globalism they say that russia and china and sometimes they add iran uh, are fighting against this globalist ideology it's a total rejection of it on an economic basis on a spiritual basis on a political basis geopolitical whatever and that's just not true uh even in iran uh i think if people were to investigate a little bit more the mullahs or in china uh who created china how uh, how is China integrated into the globalist system? They'd find out that really these people again are in agreement about ninety plus percent of everything. But that doesn't mean you know people who have small disagreements are still willing to fight bitter wars. I mean, look at you and your behavior with your friends or something like that. We all know that petty disagreements can be the source of a lot of strife. So the assumption that just because they're in some kind of a visible conflict now that this means that they have totally diametric worldviews and world plans uh, is is an assumption that it's tempting to make it's comforting to make but there's no proof of it and 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 they cannot explain how this divergence could have come about because anyone who has studied for example the Soviet history I'm not a big expert on China I know a little I know enough about it to say that okay they're also part of this whole transition to a globalized everything. Uh, and a lot of people have also deduced that. But with the Soviet Union, I have the advantage of, I actually know what I'm talking about. I've studied it pretty in depth, pretty extensively. Uh, and it, it's, a, it's, just, it's just something that anyone who studies it would, would be floored or they would be um, stumped by the explanations given by today's propagandists who claim that Russia is this Christian, anti-globalist, anti-communist, anti-all the bad things country because you have to point to a certain moment when Russia when the, Russia stopped being all those things because we know that Russia was all those things under the Soviet Union and you can just trace it and then all of a sudden we have okay. Yeltsin and we know Yeltsin's up to no yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> I'm just saying there's no someone has to explain to me at what point Russia became this incredible fighter for all the good things and and I have nothing against Russia I mean I guess the government the elites at what point did the elites become these anti-globalists show me at the historical point when the, the continuity that was broken from what was before and what we have now. 
and they can't point to it. It's just like a miracle. Like at some point, everyone had a change of heart. You know what I'm saying? That that was the main point I was trying to get at. Yeah, and you know, you were breaking up, uh, but um, you came back, and I was just gonna. I was going to mention, you know, I was uh, a couple of years back, went to Russia uh, with uh, Center for Citizens Initiatives with Sharon Ten- Tennyson, uh, 30 of us Americans on this peace diplomacy mission. We we were with Gorbachev for two hours. I got to shake hands with him, Vladimir Bozner. Uh, and then I went to Kazan, Tatarstan, um, and then they showed us uh, Orthodox Church where they told the story of how during the Soviet Union, um, they filled the church with people standing like to the max, like sardines in the can. Uh, and then they would throw them from the roof of the church and, and kill them. Um, and then, you know, when I was living in Kazakhstan, also part of the Soviet Union, they told us stories as well that in the churches there, uh, they would come during the Soviet Union and all the men would disappear. Uh, and in the early days, century ago, they'd build the church, government confiscates it, they build it again, they destroy it, so on and so forth. Uh, and so, as you say, uh, I would agree with you, it, it, there doesn't really seem to to be a, a big um, switch over. Um, but, but, but just to go back to, to what you were talking about, I would agree with you on this concept of, of convergence. Others like, you know, Anthony Sutton, uh, wrote about this many years ago. And it's funny, Yuri Roshka, actually, he asked me like, why don't I write an article? Because I, I, I likened it to two Mexican cartels, right? Uh, and I, I don't have time to write. Uh, and so, but Juan Grillo, who's, uh, I've, who I've had on the podcast, he's one of like the top journalists on, on Mexico. He tweets a couple of days ago, he says, the idea there are duopolies of power in Mexico between the cartels and the government in many states, such as Sinaloa or Tamaulipas, explains a lot how things work. Sometimes those two spheres of power work together, but sometimes they are at war. And so when you're talking about East versus West, I liken it to cartels. They have the same methods, right? Extortion, murder, chopping heads off, killing, uh, stealing. Uh, but sometimes they, they butt heads. W- would you uh, think that's a good analogy? Um, yeah, that's a good analogy. If we're talking tactics and techniques, well, you know, there isn't really that much daylight between what Russia has been doing. I mean, we're, we created, it's just, I guess, measures of, I think most people would point out that, you know, the cartels probably more extreme, take things to, to the logical conclusion a little bit more than the government, which still is like, I don't know how it is in Mexico, but perhaps there's similarities, but you know, there's, there's still differences of scale. And proportion and for sure in ukraine the repression has been extreme i mean we've all seen people being taped and beaten and it's like who who even are these people who are these supposed traitors i don't think that they were russian spies i don't think russia was actively doing any of the things that they were accused of doing because if that that, that would imply russia was competent and, and was actually trying to win this war no i think it was just a witch hunt hysteria the worst impulses, mob mentality was unleashed in Ukraine. And you didn't have that in Russia. And that's that's obviously much better. But in other things, both countries had COVID shutdowns. Uh, both countries are run by gangs of psychopathic oligarchs. The spook state is completely totalitarian, overreaching, um, meddling with people uh, on levels that, you know, I think would 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 appall most people in the sense of like stealing businesses from people, stealing humanitarian aid, uh, stealing from the soldiers, um, harassing journalists, locking up people like Strelkov, who I think uh, we're going to talk about today. Uh, just doing you know stuff on that level. Both countries have that. Uh, both countries assassinate or you know for some reason people who state unpopular 
opinions that are unpopular with the ruling elite they they tend to disappear uh you know it's just for some reason their life expectancy is shortened and no one can prove anything of course but trends do exist like that in both countries so um and when we compare it to say america i'm tempted to quote lomanov edward lomanov who spent some time in the west uh and then he came back to russia and he created this uh sort of political agitation group, activist group uh, that was also anti-Kremlin, but from like an extreme sort of uh, right-wing uh, perspective. Anyway, his, his thing was that um, he saw the same methods at work in the West as in the Soviet Union. He just saw that they were more refined in the West, that they didn't need these jackboot wearing thugs breaking into people's apartments. They didn't need to do to send the police out with batons to break up uh, protesting students, that they had achieved compliance through much cleverer means. Uh, yes, if, if they needed to, they would, uh, the, the regime would show its true face and it would be very similar to what you have in the East. It's just the, they're more competent and so they don't need to rely on the same strong-arm tactics that you have in the East. The propaganda is more refined. The social pressure is more refined. The, the social reforms have been more sweeping. Uh, the community and the trust between the citizenry has been more thoroughly eroded. Uh, civic society has been more thoroughly infiltrated. So there's, he had all these interesting arguments. But yes, it's like what you said. It's two rival gangs. The tactics at their core are the same. It's just, sure, you could make an argument about proportion and scale. Because So Strelkov, who is this critic of the war effort from the perspective of he thinks that the, 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 the Kremlin government is pro-Western, it's compromised, that they're self-sabotaging, or that they're um, not willing to take measures that need to be taken because they're getting orders from Langley. Uh, he And he has a track record of, of being involved in a bunch of pro-Russian causes, like in Transnistria and uh, in Serbia, and uh, in and obviously in Donbass, where he was one of the main instigators of the armed rebellion. So he was arrested and he was sentenced. And we don't know really what the charges were because it was secret charges. Partial, uh, most of the proceedings, the relevant parts, were kept secret. And uh, we don't even understand. So we don't understand like how he broke the law. We don't understand. But... So, yes, people in the West are arrested. They get their banks' accounts confiscated. They get set up by the feds or they get, in, in, you know, implicated in, like, the January 6th protesters. Uh, you know, there's a lot of fishy stuff. There's a lot of this sort of black psyops going on in the West, for sure. But do they ever just straight up barge into someone's house and arrest him for stating opinions that the, that the regime does not find uh, flattering. No, they have much better methods. They have much uh, softer coercive methods. And But I, in I, Russia, they, they I, have to use... I, I would just add, add here a few examples, and I, I agree with you. By and large, in the West, they don't do that. That's more common in places like Russia or, or China or somewhere, maybe the Middle East. But um, you know, the very first guest on my podcast over a decade ago, which initially was called Dissident Thinker, was Corporal... Thorson, um, and he he was a former he was in the military, 
And what happened was, this is in the U.S., he was privately on social media, Facebook, whatever, not publicly, but just in private messaging between friends and family discussing how 9-11 was an inside job or whatever. Because of that, the secret police in the U.S., and there's video of this, they went to his house and they renditioned him, basically. They took him like uh, totally insane. I think they were going to put him in a mental hospital. And then John Whitehead of the Rutherford Institute, who's also been a guest on my podcast he got him out and so th this does happen in the u.s but i think it's much more in this case i think it was a soldier who was speaking the truth and in the west because they worship the the, the war industry americans um they will listen more closely to a soldier and so the government's like we can't we can't have this guy talking about um 9-11 but I, I just wanted to say that it does happen but um i think it's few and far between look at me you know in two, uh, two years ago the department of homeland security took me off of PayPal. Uh, and so they, they've got all these other uh, methods. Yeah, I've been banned off PayPal and I'm a nobody. Like, it's just, it's incredible. Uh, and nobody, you know, I, I've had, no one wants to talk about this, but like, because it's, it's a stigma, but I've basically been harassed by spooks in in America and in uh, in Russia, Belarus and Ukraine. And I'm, I'm literally nobody. Like I have, I get 3,000 people reading this was even before I had a blog, you know, it was, I was just a person of interest, uh, because, you know, I'm, I'm well-educated, I guess. And, uh, which means well indoctrinated. Right. And because I travel a lot and, you know, my family was not exactly just peasants. So there you go, everyone. And, and no one wants to talk about like people on Twitter that I personally knew who had 30,000 followers, you know, that's, much more than I have, uh, but that's still nothing really in terms of Twitter terms. They were getting visits by the FBI. Uh, some people I knew that attended a, a rally like 10 years ago uh, got visited by the FBI uh, last year. And, you know, some guy who worked as a journalist, like a lowly journalist somewhere, he was visited by the spooks as well. Uh, he told me his story and he was, he was like shocked. He was like, I, I thought I was just like a blogger. No one cares. They do care. They, this is this is happening everywhere. They go to YouTube influencers. They go to Instagram influencers. They go to bloggers. They go to people who finished good schools. They they go to people with any you know with military connections or familial connections in some way with the government. You know, there's lots of books that have been written about this sort of thing. It's a widespread phenomenon, uh, and I think people are just in denial about it because it's scary or because. They're scared because they themselves have been approached and no one wants to break the taboo or because they're afraid that people will consider them crazy because, oh, you're just imagining it. No one could take an interest in you. You're just sort of puffing yourself up. You know, so there's all this is the, the sort of the softer methods of coercion. Like you, you mentioned trying to commit someone into a psychiatric hospital. Well, that that's a that's a standard Soviet tactic, except what they would do is they they'd show up and they'd throw you literally like into a straitjacket and haul you off to be chemically or, or otherwise lobotomized and, and uh, beaten and uh, yelled at and, you know, messed with, right? In America, though, they encourage you to turn yourself in, right? They, they'll come up with all these weird diseases and illnesses that you, should, that you can self-diagnose yourself with. They have a nice, friendly counselor in every single school who says, you know, you might be experiencing gender dysphoria and I have just the thing for you, just the surgery for you, young man or young lady. 
and they they do all this in a much more uh, clever way. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. I think uh, for sure that, that this is this is a point worth stressing. Uh, and in, again, in Russia, like you you feel the spook state, even though in America, I think it's much larger, just mm -hmm. in absolute and even proportional terms. I mean, we're talking millions of people affiliated with it. It's a parasite. It's a it's cancer. It's uh, yeah. It's it's in the east. It's more visceral. Like uh, when I was in Kazakhstan, I mean, you can see it, and it's it's in your face. You know, when when um, one night um, we get a knock on the door, and it's a Kazakh one guy, authority cop or whatever, and he just walks right into my kitchen apartment there in Semey, Semipalatinsk, Kazakhstan. Nice guy. But, you know, he's, he's filling out the forms and he's just making sure, you know, we were registered that we were living in that apartment and he just they needed to see that we were living in that apartment. And that is just when you think about it, that's just wild that the government, like a government agent goes to your home to make sure you're. And then I experienced, you know, because that government uh, flipping on and off the Internet, I had to go through three VPNs. Uh, my private email, start mail is banned in Kazakhstan and Russia. So it's like I had to use the VPNs to get to my email, and then they block my VPNs, which I can't, uh, you know, then get to my email. So all that sort of stuff. But then to get back to Strelkov and then the Ukraine war, um, you know, what would be the further meaning of this? I think, I mean, it's kind of you're explaining Russia is doing the same to their true dissidents and patriots as the West does, as China does, as Europe does, right? Alina Lip, the German journalist, uh, they cut off her bank accounts, her parents' bank accounts, Graham Phillips in the UK. I mean, we can go on and on with all these different stories all over the place here in Mexico. Well, well my Russian uh, bank account is is cut off as well. Why? Because uh, I got kicked out of Russia and I need a Russian SIM card to get the notifications to access the, the app. And I can't, I can't get it fixed at all. I can't communicate. I can't get through to these people. I have to figure out a way. So like, I know that's a, it's like I'm being facetious here, but uh, people have a lot of problems with the the spare bank and uh, we're going to bring up spare bank as well. Just the, the way everything is structured in the Slavlands, it's, it's, it's so anti-people. It's so pro-corporation where these people can just straight up steal your money temporarily. Like they, 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 there've been moments when they've frozen uh, people's accounts. Oh, we're just doing like a, a check, a maintenance check frozen. They didn't have the money. So they, you know, they froze the accounts. They moved some stuff over. Spare bank posts record profits. Spare bank owns almost all of Russia. None of this ever gets mentioned, you know, it, it, but I'm, I'm jumping ahead. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about Strelkov, uh, if you're Well, ready. Just to, to add on that, on that story as well, you know, I, I was um, going to open up, you know, I still have a Kazakh bank account uh, and I was going to open a stock account there. But then given what you're saying now, I was like, well, you know, I'm moving. I'm, I'm not going to live in Kazakhstan forever. We moved back to Mexico. And it's like I, I'm at some point I'm not going to have the access to my bank account. You know, something like what you explained is going to happen or uh, they're going to do another covid and then I won't be able to get on a plane without being injected to go check my account in Kazakhstan. Uh, and so mm -hmm. I just I just thought to heck with it. But um, you, yeah. And, and the bigger picture of the Ukraine war. So, you know, Strelkov. Um, what is more what is important there uh with him are there others like him and then to get your thoughts on where are we with the ukraine war yeah well look there's in any situation any country there's a small group of people that more or less are telling the truth like uh, there's there's just people who are truth inclined truth oriented who will 
do their best with their limitations to try and give you a different perspective, which is probably more closely aligned with the truth. We have these people in America, we have them in the West, we have them in any country, you'll have a handful of these types. There are there are Ukrainians who will say interesting things about what's happening in Ukraine. And there are Russians who will say interesting things about this whole situation about their government. For example, Aristovich, um, who is just, he's just an interesting character. He's got, uh, he was the former advisor to President Zelensky. And before that, he was a Duganite. And his whole background is, is, is frankly bizarre. He's got a spook background. You have to be a spook to be anybody. Strelkov is also a former spook, a reserve spook. It's like the new nobility. You know, if you're talking about Europe of the 15th or the before that or the 16th century, you're talking about different nobles, right? And in the modern times, we're talking about different spooks. Someone says they like Tucker. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, he's he's a spook too. Mm -hmm. His father was a spook. He's a spook royalty. And someone says, oh, I don't like this. Uh, what's his name? Anderson Cooper on CNN. Well, he's another spook as well. So we're just discussing. Different I mean, nobles, we can different go nobles. further. I mean, even Alex Jones, his whole entire family, uh, Andrew Tate, you know, it's just mind boggling. Andrew Tate, great right. example. Yeah. yeah, great example. Like you wouldn't think some weird uh pimp in romania or whatever would would but yeah he's he's affiliated he's a cia family or oss at the time anyway yeah it's incredible so when we're talking about all these personalities we're talking about the nobility and sure you can pick one noble or the other who you think represents your interests better and i'm pro strelkov but i mean he is a spook like i'm not a spook i'm i'm, I'm not in, affiliated with intelligence and so to me, there's, that's always going to be like a, a barrier. And I think, um, I think that's an important thing to understand, like who, who we're talking about here. These aren't, you know, despite what, I, what I, even if I might agree with someone with say what Tucker has to say, we're not the same people. We're not in the same cast. There's always going to be that where you have to wonder what their true allegiance is and whether this influences their behavior. So with Strelkov, he, there are other people like him. He's just the most visible, the most prominent. Aristovich, who was the Ukrainian uh, advisor to President Zelensky, who is now hiding out in America because he fears assassination in Ukraine, uh, he also says interesting things about the war. Like he admits that actually Ukraine, Kiev, got everything that they wanted out of the negotiations for the ceasefire that occurred in April, a couple months after the start of the SMO. Uh, so that was in the first year. And he says, we opened a champagne bottle. Everything we wanted. We got out of it. We were actually really pleased by the terms that Moscow offered us. And we were a bit surprised that Zelensky then tore up the agreement, the peace with Russia. And these kinds of statements uh, are very interesting because they, they piss everybody off. Everybody who hears this gets extremely offended. It's, it's the same thing with a lot of these truth tellers. You'll figure it out. Like Partisans will say something that at least appeals to one large group of people. But let's think about what Aristovich is saying when he says this. He's saying that Moscow surrendered, essentially, like Moscow sold out, that Moscow gave Kiev everything they wanted. You know, the Nazis, the satanic uh, globalist Nazis that we're fighting a holy jihad against right now. Yeah, apparently, according to Aristovich and this, this other guy, some other people have come out, and according to Lukashenko, who also operates it, Moscow was willing to surrendered Donbass and was willing to start leasing Crimea from Ukraine, from Kiev again. And so anyone who's like pro-Russia is not going to like that news and no one's going to touch it because it says something about Putin and his cronies 
that the that they had they, they basically sold out. They were like, yeah, here, have all this stuff, right? Uh, and then nobody on Ukraine's side is going to touch the story as well because Aristovich is saying, well, there was no reason for this war. Uh, Moscow is basically our greatest ally. They gave us more than we wanted, and we still decided to fight a war. And that it means that they're lying about how like this is this amazing war of liberation and self-defense is nothing nothing of the kind they, they were never at any risk and that's the same thing with Strokov and his stuff he's, he's he'll explain certain realities from the front he'll explain certain political realities like he's he'll often say putin was probably a western asset a western intelligence asset who probably got turned uh during his service in germany and he'll point out that a lot of the original 90s government in Russia were people who, for some reason or another, were stationed in uh, in Europe, in like, what do you call it, in, in Eastern Europe, in like uh, bordering Western Europe, basically. A lot of people that, for some reason, had ties with the West for one reason or the other. For like, for one, maybe it's part of their job or whatever. It doesn't matter. You look at the list of personalities in the Kremlin, and it's like, yeah, wow, that guy was the liaison with the with this Western country and this guy was stationed in this Western country. Interesting. What a coincidence. So he was, and so, but let's take that, that uh, let's apply the same filter, the same analysis to the statement that Putin may have been in the beginning of, of his career, a Western asset or a Western chosen replacement for Yeltsin. Who would like to hear that? Do the Russians like to hear? Well, a lot of them do, but like, do, you know, would the average Russian who's patriotically inclined like to hear that his commander in chief was a, you know, an, an, an agent of the enemy sent in as part of an occupation government to deliberately weaken Russia? No, of course not. No one wants to hear that. Uh, does the average Ukrainian want to hear that? In that case, their, their, their struggle for, you know, against everything bad and for everything good rings hollow because. The guy that they're struggling against is, is is actually an agent of the people who are funding them and giving them weapons. So you see these kinds of explanations, they add a little bit of uh, complication to the simple emotional propaganda narratives that we're supposed to be consuming. So, Anytime you add a little bit of nuance, the propaganda aspect is diminished. And so there's basically a war on nuance uh, in the in the commentator sphere. You can't ever mention any of these details you can't mention what Strelkov said what Aristovich said because these people kind of throw a wrench into the wheel is what i'm saying yeah and we even see that in the alternative media space where now like the alternative media is becoming like mainstream alternative media where they're starting to look and feel like legacy media and they're losing this nuance they're, they're, they're no longer talk like you and i they're, they're not going there and one thing I wanted to ask you before was we've seen uh, Lavrov or Putin, I think, um, make these declarations like the, the satanic West with their transgenderism and all this sort of stuff. So how is it that, you know, they have this appearance that they are battling the West, but I would agree with you that they really are not. They're implementing the technocracy and all of that. But um just, just well, your even the, okay, even even on the gay thing, that's like also just not, not true that Russia's like anti-gay. Uh, if you look a little bit deeper into it, uh, you'll find that there's this politician. His name is Milanov. He's from Saint Petersburg, and he was featured in this documentary by Steve Fry, who is this prominent homosexual who 
came over to Russia to basically berate them for being anti-gay. But a lot of these anti-gay initiatives were citizen-driven. They were grassroots or they were uh, politicians on like, uh, you know, he's a populist, this Milanov. It was populist, sort of Christian or nationalist or like monarchist type politicians who forced the issue. I mean, this guy was hammering away at it for a decade. They tried to create groups. They tried to create initiatives. You know, it was a very, uh, and, and, it, and, it, and it proved very popular. And so the Kremlin belatedly, I mean, the Kremlin wasn't talking like this in 2006. They weren't talking like this in 2011. You know, they had, they, they were, they, they, they picked it up like, you know, uh, a shopper would in an aisle at the shopping market, uh, at the grocery store. They just, they were like looking around. All right, we need something for, to make this propaganda recipe. Okay. Ooh, cinnamon. Let's take that. Let's add this to it. Uh, Putin recently, just this year said, Gays uh, actually belong in the media. They contribute a lot to it. And they should be able to celebrate their gay culture in Russian media. And this man is portrayed as like this, the Mr. Anti-Gay. Uh, you know, Pence in America is probably more anti-gay than Putin with his like electro-shocking therapy approach to, to the problem. I don't, I don't know if he still believes that or if he, he dumped that. But, you know, I'm talking about Putin has never been this Mr. Anti-Gay guy. And a lot of the stuff that people misattribute to Putin is actually uh, attributable to the regular Russian people and smaller populist politicians who have been working tirelessly to try and combat the, the gay thing. And, and on another level, the, uh, the gays control a lot of institutions in Russia. Uh, and I, I don't know. I mean, like, you could say on some level that you could... It's a lifestyle choice, and who are we to, to judge? But on another level, it's just observable behavior that uh, homosexuals band together and create networks of influence and support for one another. And this is just a phenomenon that repeats over and over again. You can even read what the what the old Stalinist communists were writing about them, and they they said the same thing. They like initially they weren't even against uh, gays because you know the Soviet Union was a very progressivist revolutionary libertine project in its initial conception they just found that these networks were, were being subversive and they, they couldn't compete with these people so what happens in in russia in the late 80s and the 90s is that these mafias started operating again so famously uh the moscow police was run by homosexual mafia and the you'll have like a lot of dissident or like sort of critiques of the police from the 90s and depictions of them, and they're depicted as, homo as depraved, homosexual, sadistic predators who sodomize brutally prisoners and stuff. Like this is, and and so, and then when we talk about the media in Russia, it's it's run by the Velvet uh, Mafia as well, or the Lavender Mafia. I forget what it's called, but you look at them and you can see. It, it used to be that they could be open about it. Like it never used to be a thing that they had to sort of conceal it. So a lot of people that used to be open about it back in the day are now pretending that they're straight because it's 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 fashionable now, you know, Russia's apparently cracking down on gay propaganda, but they all keep their positions. Uh one of them runs the uh, Orthodox network, Spas. The the guy who runs the Orthodox network uh is a homosexual man who used to be more open about it and then he then he got his job as as head of a of a Christian media organization, the only one in Russia. And now he, he kind of plays it on the down low. 
there's many examples of it. Like mm -hmm. Mr. The guy who was put in charge of conservative media in Russia to create a conservative platform, ideology, a project. Uh, I think Krasnov is his name. And uh, I mean, he was an open homosexual as well. And this is Mr. Conservative. This is the guy who is finding conservative pro-Russian writers that he can get together and create a... Uh, uh, Krasovsky, sorry. And to get together and, and, and to create like a, you know, a, an anti-Western opposition to... I mean, this... This is ridiculous. You look at the entertainment media and it's open homosexuals. I mean, men in drag. Russia has men in drag who perform and uh, the, the grannies love it. You know, they never, you know what I mean? It's like, and it's, and I'm not saying this to, to say that I'm pro Ukraine. Ukraine has all of this and worse. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's the same thing. These are basically the same countries that went through the same thing. The elite have the same mindset. Uh, it's, it's, it's remarkably similar. Um, like you said, it's like two rival gangs. And the thing is, is that they weren't even rival gangs in the past. Uh, and a lot of, for example, Russian media was created uh, and filmed in Ukraine. Why? Because it was cheaper. So almost all of the Russian, in, in fact, they still continue filming there. Some of them. That's a funny story. Russian media, like soap operas and dramas and these, these shows, most of them are filmed in Ukraine still to this day. Uh, and uh, how do you square that circle? There's a war apparently against an existential war against Nazism, and yet Russia continues to sell them gas, continues right. to sell them yeah. tomatoes. Uh, well, and I think until recently, film. until recently, uranium. I, I heard that uh, was it like a month ago. The U.S. finally said we're not going to purchase uranium <laughs> anymore from Russia. But um, then to get like really to the crux of the issue, what does the Western camp want? You know, Washington. London, Brussels, and then you've got the other, I don't know if, even if there is a unified collective uh, East, but, you know, it seems like the U.S. wants to destroy Russia or subjugate it. It seems like Russia wants to sort of just be seen as equals at the same globalist table. That That's sort of the, the, the best, latest conclusion that I've come to. They're all just jostling for position at the same globalist table. But it seems like the West wants to take over like an octopus, Russia, and Russia would be happy just, you know, being e equal partners. You, you know, any thoughts as to what Washington wants to do with Russia and, yeah, and then well, what well, Kremlin? I'm, you know, there's there's layers to it. Like, I can't tell you about the specific business interests because that's going to be a big factor. Like, it's, it's who gets what, you know, how much of this plant and how much of this country do you own? I don't know the details of that. That's hashed out behind the scenes. That's probably 90% of what the peace agreement between Kiev and Moscow was in Istanbul, right? Which oligarch gets what? Um, this whole operation was launched pretty much exactly because uh, Putin's uh, godfather uh, oligarch uh, friend, Medvedchuk, was arrested and his network was being wrapped up. That's pretty much it. It was an oligarch rescue operation and it's clear that he was supposed to be included in the in the peace deal. Anyway, but the, the point of it is that there's that aspect. And then there might be an ideological aspect. So the ideological conflict between the East and the West, which was only partially resolved with the collapse of the Soviet Union, might uh, linger on to this day. And so you basically have slightly more, slightly, uh, I, I guess, slight, the differences between... Uh, the, the main difference during the Cold War was between Trotskyites and Stalinists, right? 
And then the Trotskyite faction within the USSR took power, uh, Gorbachev, and uh, before that, Andropov. And they, they instituted these reforms and they basically blew the whole thing up. And the reason why was they, they wanted convergence. They wanted to join the elite. Now, they were trying to do this by smoothing over ideological discrepancies between the East and the West. It's hard for Westerners to conceptualize of this, but their government and their whole ideology is Trotskyism. Um, it, 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 like if I were to take a politician from 2004 and 2003 and replay some of their statements, it would come off as like, uh, you know, hard right wing reactionary. You know, hmm. we're talking about people who don't accept gay marriage. We're talking about uh, people who are willing to maybe talk about crime and immigration, even on the Democrat side, like. It's it's a, it's incredible. Uh, if we look at the tapes of Biden in the '90s, right? He's willing to talk about uh, how desegregation and, and busing is a, is like a problem, and people and people will replay these clips. And uh, even Kamala Harris is willing to talk about super predators. And you know, it's just it's hard to conceptualize of America at the time as being Trotskyite, but it was at the elite level. Uh, it's it's uh, the neocons are sort of like the uh, the Israel-oriented part of that. But so you have a difference still ideologically between East and the West. And a lot of it was bridged when the pro-Western faction came to power in the Soviet Union and they collapsed uh, the wall and they sort of began integrating into this globalist system. But it's uh, it seems clear to me that there's still some ideological divergence between the two. And this ideological divergence is basically like Western versus Eastern communism. And there are elements, I think, of the old communist idea that a lot of these Soviet, I mean, the people who are running Russia are like in their 80s and their 90s, that these old Soviet dinosaurs, they still cling to that. So, for example, Finkelstein, the guy who, uh, who was the top spook in Russia at the time who tapped uh, Putin, uh, there was a meeting between Putin, Kissinger, uh, and uh, Yeltsin, and uh, that's when Putin was uh, tapped to be the successor. And so Finkelstein is this uh, is sort of the Russian uh, Kissinger counterpart. And it seems like yeah, he 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 was a very old school like pioneer uh, Soviet youth type guy. And it seems that some of his views are decidedly old school. And there are a lot of people who are from his age cohort. Uh, who still kind of cling to these older ideas. That might be one of the friction points between East and the West. So it's not as stark as between a Stalinist and a Trotskyist, like these two different forms of communism. It might be two different forms of globalism. It's just a little bit of... And uh, I've gotten into some of the ideological differences a little bit on the blog, and I'm going to write about it more in the future. But again, if we keep in mind the tyranny of small differences, it may seem inconsequential. You guys are for world government, we're for world government. You're for destroying culture and creating a global mass of gray, standardized, serialized you know, people, citizens, comrades, proletariat or whatever. We're for the same thing, except we call them consumers. You know, it, it might seem like it's, it's very superficial, but I think, I think it, it's, it's worth pointing out that this might be one of the cornerstones of the conflict. Yeah, and then I, finally, I, go ahead. I was just gonna, well, I was just going to add. I saw you know, sometimes when I talk about Amlo Lopez Obrador, the president of Mexico, um, uh, uh, kind of like as you analyze things, 
if you look on paper, he's a globalist because he's actually come out and said, let's copy the EU and integrate Canada, USA, uh, Mexico into North American Union. So de facto globalist, you know, there's a tweet from 2016 with him and um, Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn, open, where he says, you know, he openly says literally something. He says world government like we are. We want world government. Um, but his his um, term here he has done good things like he's worked to retain the energy sovereignty uh, or the sovereignty in different forms here in Mexico, energy sovereignty, food sovereignty. Um, so I, I would kind of use him as an example of let's say maybe a little more humane sort of globalist versus some of these other guys who want to just destroy and pillage everything. Yeah, for sure. Like, for example, um, you know, how about this one? Was there really, looking back at it, a difference between Bush and Kerry? Like, would it really have made a difference if Kerry had won instead of Bush and the... I doubt it. Uh, Bush both both time? were skull and bones, right? Yeah, good point. Uh, it, it's all one elite hangout, limited hangout, you know? And uh, we're not part of it. It's like that... What, is, what was that? Comedian, George Carlin. The George old, Carlin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one big club and you're not in it. So it's the same thing. And you look at, there's this saying that like you can, you can judge a person by the five closest people around them. And you look at the five closest people around Putin and it's like, wow, these, these are very like Medvedev. He's pretending to be this caricature of an ultra patriot. But, you know, when he first showed up on the scene, this is the, the ultra liberal reformer guy. This is the Justin Trudeau of Russia. Hey, kids, uh, I like the rock music too. Hey, look, I had a perm in the 80s. You know, I'm one of you. <laughs> like that, that was his whole thing. And uh, then you go down the, I mean, I'm not saying that he's close to Putin now, but you just, you go down the list of all the people that have been around Putin, that have mentored Putin, that Putin used to work for. Subchak, for example, uh, Anatoly Subchak from St. Petersburg. I mean, we know that this guy stole gargantuan amounts of money from St. Petersburg and stuffed it in Paris. He was a criminal. He was a gangster. You know, people died. Uh, and Putin was part of his team. He was walking around like a Gopnik in his uh, sort of like Italian mobster style velvet Adidas pants. Like all, all he was missing is the golden chain and one of those hats, you know, like those like pikey sort of, what do you call them? Irish type berets, you know, that's all he was missing to complete the look. So we know that this is what his early career was like. We know that he was involved in some sort of hoodlum street activity because he was part of a criminal judo gang when he was young and uh, in St. Petersburg. And two of the guys who were in the judo gang with him are two of Russia's most powerful oligarchs now. Uh, and and the, his master, uh, his, his sensei, was a criminal, like a, a, an organized mafia criminal. Uh, part of the organized Jewish mafia in Russia. You go down the list, you know, okay, Midvichuk, this guy who's now the godfather to uh, Putin's daughter or the other way around, I always forget. Uh, basically, adopted family at this point. Close friend of Putin. What do we know about this guy? He's a criminal. He's an oligarch. You know, he's blood on his hands, stolen, misappropriated, expropriated. This is a very shady guy. Uh, close to Putin. And the funny thing is that he's out there and the statements he makes are very similar to what Strelkov would say. It's like in America, for example, you're not allowed to talk about the great replacement. Uh, you're, you're, but you are actually, if you're a liberal. So you're allowed to say, you know, 
I hate white people. I hate white men. I hate straight, Christian, straight, heterosexual white men. And it's a good thing that they're going to be a minority in the next 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. And that's okay. That's a-okay. That's love speech. But if you say, oh my God, white Christian men are being targeted and the country's being forcibly diversified and they're trying to get rid of uh, whites and make them minority in America, well, then you're a hate speech, whatever, like in trouble with the feds you're in that kind of a situation, right? You're a bad person. It's the same thing. So Strelkov says, look, Moscow is looking to make a deal with the West. Moscow's elites are dependent on the West. Their whole worldview is Western. Their capital networks uh, are Western. Their assets are stashed uh, in the West. Every single one of them has uh, assets stashed in the West that, that we know of, right? I mean, Lavrov, for example, Mr oh, I'm going to geopolitically checkmate the West. Uh, he had a, of, of that we know of, it was revealed that he had an 11 million pound flat and a daughter living in London <laughs> while the SMO was going on. He, never did he feel that he had to uh, save her from the Satanists, you know? Never did he feel that it, her life was in trouble. Now she's living in her, you know, in her bachelor pad, uh, you go down the list, Peskov, the top spokesman for the Kremlin, his son got in trouble because he was part of a, some packy drug dealing gang that got pulled over the, by the police in London. Uh, I don't know if it was London, in the UK as well. But uh, so he got in trouble for that. And we know, we can see pictures, we can see how he looks, how he behaves like. This man is like, the, a, the, it's like a wannabe M&M. M- M. This reminds me of, and it's there's a trend here, because it's, the, the, uh, it's interesting that they're all in the UK. When I was in Kazakhstan, like the the last year or two that I was there, there was a story that broke that, you know, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, right? 30 years president that his, technically I was employed by Nazarbayev, um, but uh, there was a story that his son, uh, I think, or his grandson who was living in UK. Uh, and, and, and it's all the same scenario as you paint. They're all posh. They all got all this money that they took from the people of their countries, right? And he, he did something crazy. Um, out there in, in in the UK, and then it's it's just the same story over and over. And it's funny why they're all concentrated in the UK. People, you know, I've had guests on that say some of the core the, the core center of globalist power might be the old British Empire. Uh, yeah, Galtovsky. He he claims that uh, yeah that it's that it's still the city of London. Yeah, and 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 I, I didn't want to ask you. You mentioned Spearbank and Hermann Graf and uh, our our friend uh, Riley Wagaman. He just just this morning um, published something on these spare cities, uh, spare cities, spare smart cities that uh, Graph is now rolling out these uh, fifteen minute cities. And you know, this is the thing. I actually live in one, so I'm I'm here in Mexico, and I live in a resilient city, which is actually it's a Rockefeller financed um, smart city. And uh, so here in Mexico, uh, Russia's building them out in Russia. It's like you know, everywhere in Kazakhstan. And so, just your, your thoughts on um, Hermann Graf and 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 uh, Spare Bank? Well, yeah, it's, it's the fifteen minute. You know, RT ran with an article this year, uh, last year. I mean, uh, and the article said actually, the Soviet Union pot, well, had also had fifteen minute cities. That this is a Soviet mm-hmm. idea, and they were like saying, well, I, they were trying to spin it as if saying, like, actually, we're the real progressivists. And it's like, yeah. That's, yeah, this is communism. You know, this is the different flavor of communism that we're talking about. But it's the same thing. We're trying to create a global USSR. But, you know, it's not going to probably have 
like the kami blocks are going to be made out of plastic, not just uh, beton, not just uh, concrete. They're going to look a little bit different architecturally. Maybe they'll have like an orange stripe running across them, like a racing stripe to make them more aesthetic or something. But yeah, it's going to be these mega blocks, 15-minute cities. Uh, you have 15-minute cities in Russia. It's these micro rayone, and I've lived in them. You have everything you need. It's not. There's not necessarily anything bad about having something within 15-minute walking range from you. Uh, the point is that, like, it, it's just, it's just, yes, these ideas have been around for a while. Um, they want to create these giant mega block uh, areas. And the reason why they want to do it is because they want control. They, like, they legitimately want to be able to shut areas down. They want areas to be, like, on the grid in the sense that, like, you can flip a switch and one section of the city goes dark and the other one loses its water. It's like a way of, they want to make sure that people can't organize. So they want to make sure that that there's this sense of ennui of like not knowing your neighbors or knowing your neighbors and keeping away from them because you know that there are pieces of shit and there's no way for you to self-segregate. There's no way for good people, well-meaning, mannered, genteel uh, people to self-segregate and create because that's usually what people do. Like, you know, if, if you're slightly smarter and slightly more industrious and disciplined, uh, you don't want to live with slobs. And so you will try to move out. You'll try to go to a slightly better area and you'll find that there are also people who are slightly better, more cultured that live in this area. Uh, in general, this is what humans have always done. They've, they've self-segregated, but the idea of these 15 minute cities is, is to, is to, make it difficult for people to create conscious communities. Um, at least that's part of it. And yeah, and so you don't, it's not difficult to, uh, anyway, the, the, with the spare bank stuff, spare bank is pretty much, Russia has these interesting corporations that are, I guess uh, if you use the 70s term, I guess I, I can't actually call it that because it's illegal, but it starts with the letter F and the idea is that it's a merger between the government and the state uh, the government and the, the private sector where the line becomes totally blurred but again this is a sort of communism but with a different flavor because the tail is wagging the dog so in the soviet union you would have these agencies and these bureaucrats who would own massive factories and they would like answer for say the canned meat supply or whatever and then the, the the sort of the, the the polarity has switched and now it's the head of the corporation or head of the industry or uh, a big economic boss man who is in a relationship in the same way with the government but he's sort of the one that calls the shots so it, it's flipped so it, it's similar but it's just a you know there's more of an emphasis on that the people with the money call the shots as opposed to the people with the government office call the shots. And it's the same thing with spare bank. Um, if it was like a Soviet type situation, then Hermann Graf would be subordinate to some bureaucrat in the Russian government, um, you know, subordinate to Putin. But as the situation is in Russia, there's still the synthesis of state and the private sector. It's just, uh, you know, the, the private sector people have more, say they're more powerful in this relationship so it's actually Hermann Greff who calls who creates state policy in Russia not the other way around so he gets to decide where state resources will be allocated why because he owns all the capital in Russia so if he wants something to be funded if he wants certain things to be built certain projects to be invested into he allocates money to them 
in the Soviet system, the government would have to do that. And then they would use these various institutions to, to get it done. So you see, it's been flipped. And who's Hermann Greff? Well, he's just a private individual. He can do whatever he wants. There's no limits or restraints put on his behavior. And Putin will be the first to say it. He can do whatever he wants and he can do as he sees fit. And what that means is that foreign interests uh, or, you know, cabals and like religious groups and, and you know, transhumanist groups and people with bizarre ideologies or who follow uh, strange religions. And he's a Kabbalist, right? These people are free to influence him because, hey, he's a private individual. You know, I'm into meditation. Some other person's into bike riding. Hermann Greff's into Kabbalah. It's the same thing. Who cares? You can't tell him what to do. And so he will fund all this bizarre stuff, facial recognition technology. Uh, he will encourage schools to have uh, like airport style security checks run by Sparebank. Trained, the, the teachers are trained by Sparebank. There's Sparebank trained teachers. Uh, and, and you know, uh, board, a, yeah. a lot of that stuff seeped in, like even to Kazakhstan, the technocracy. When I was, so I left, I was uh, trying to escape. When COVID hit from Kazakhstan, because I knew it was all just, uh, um, you know, an, an operation. And it took me like three attempts to escape uh, with my family. And eventually it took like five days to get back to Mexico. But because uh, I was afraid that I'd be stuck forever in Kazakhstan without that, I wouldn't be able to board a plane without being injected. And uh, even, you know, even people told me later that at the school in Kazakhstan during COVID, you'd have to, um, they they added like iPads or or screens to scan your face, like if you were wearing the mask or or to check who you were, uh, and if something was off, you you couldn't pass the turnstile, uh, and then people couldn't. You know, it was very hardcore. We we were issued during COVID the cards which said you can't you can't you couldn't leave the apartment at all one day, and they had like police on patrol. I was absolutely like I was living in some bizarro world, you know, dystopia and. Um, yeah, you, you, that, that's being rolled out in, in Russia. I keep reading on biometric update every week. Russia's rolling out massive facial recognition, all this crazy stuff. Do, do you personally think, like looking globally, do you think we're on the road to dystopia that we're going to end up in this sort of social credit, global social credit type system? Or are you sort of more optimistic that they won't be able to implement it? Well, we kind of have to understand that we live in yesteryear's dystopia. So if you read H.G. Wells, or if you read, I don't know, like even Orwell, I guess, even though Orwell was a Trotskyite, and that's the only reason why Westerners were encouraged to read his books in high school, uh, it wasn't because their government was anti-totalitarian, it's their government was anti-Stalinist. And the books were pro-Trotsky propaganda. And all these people who have Orwell quotes in their bio, I'm sorry, but you're basically like Boxer from Animal Farm, or you're like the gullible masses. You didn't bother to look more deeply into this. You never asked the question, why did the government that is oppressing me encourage me to read a book about totalitarianism and something? I mean, isn't that kind of weird? So yes, our, our, our current reality if someone from 1950 or 1960 was plucked out of their timeline and dropped into our world now, they think that we were in a dystopia already. And if you did, and we've, you know, you, you read all the social engineering literature that's come out 
in the last 100 years, in the last 200 years. You can even start with Plato. And you could be like, oh, wow. You know, a lot of these things have already been implemented. And uh, we've already been changed. Our whole worldview has been the new norm now is so crazy. And then you could say that 2012, some people write about this, is like was already a, like a Maoist cultural revolution that we lived through. Like the last 10 plus years have been uh, a nonstop rolling cultural revolution. And uh, you look at the way we, in the last decade or so that views about transgenderism, uh, sexual identity, sexual practice, dating practice, marriage, family formation, uh, the role of the state, just all this stuff of social relations among people. It used to be prior to 2012, you could be friends with someone that voted for an opposing political party. You can't do that now in, in, this, in, this, in this new age where everything has become so dramatically politicized. So we already live in a dystopia uh, we live in yesteryear's dystopia, and when they and yeah, of course they'll they'll. What is the why would like the only thing that could prevent them rolling this out is like some sort of technological mishap, or like they just don't have the tech yet, or if a solar flare occurred. There's no organized political force that's pushing back against mm -hmm. any of this stuff. Why would they? Why, why would they not succeed in this? If I can prove that all these things are happening in China, in Russia, in Ukraine, in America, everywhere, uh, where is the locus of resistance to it? And what would be the ideological resistance to it? Like, if you take the ideas of, say, liberalism from the 19th or the 18th century, you can see that, like, you know, logically, a lot of the stuff that's happened is is consistent with this ideology. Uh, you know, even you take communism and you're like, okay, well, what's happening now is pretty consistent with communism. There's no real contradiction. I can't really argue from if everybody accepts some of the key tenets of communism, that we're all equal, you know, that, that this is the role of the government and that uh, it, you just go down the list. Most people accept many of the key, the key core tenets of communism, just like, they, uh, just like nowadays following the cultural revolution of the last decade, most people accept the core tenets of SJWism. So the only thing that most people have any problem with is that things are going too fast, I guess. The, the amount of people who have a principled idea, like worldview that they've formed out, that's fully fleshed out, that they can sort of say, okay, this is why I'm in, in principle against all this stuff. It's We're talking, you know, single digit percent of people. Most people are on board, I would say, with all this. I mean, you talk to the average person and they're like, oh yeah, it's gonna be convenient, technology's good. I believe in all this stuff I'm supposed to believe in, at least in the cities. I don't know if well, that's been your experience. Well, we have the same view. Like I, I've been I, talking about like here in Mexico, it's just, you look around me, it's all bots. It's like, uh, you know, every, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't like going to the big box stores. If I have to like, well, I haven't been to Costco in years. Like I'll go once and I'll buy up like stuff, non-perishables for three years, literally. Uh, but then I just see everyone around. Net, they're they're all into the Netflix, uh, Amazon boxes are thrown across the streets. Um, they're all you know McDonald's, all Walmart, all that stuff. And I feel like you. I kind of have this view that there's n nothing is stopping the global algorithm ghetto, as I like to call it. It's rolling um, forward. And I was going to mention this tweet from Shi Van Fleet. Um, she's this Chinese um, uh, an American. She, in America, she put out a book, uh, and she got this tweet. Uh, I think it, it relates to what you're saying. She says. Mandatory vaccines and DEI training are the equivalent of Mao's let 100 
one hundreds of flowers bloom campaign in the fifties. Both were designed to identify and weed out uh, resistance. So I think she's she she hit it on the head. Like that's right now right now um, underway. Active measures, as my recent podcast guest Jay Michael Waller would say, former CIA uh, dude, um, and. I want to get back to the, the 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 multipolarity thing. We were talking about media, and something interesting I've I've found. Um, who was it? I had a guest on recently, um, Keith Preston of AttackTheSystem.com on my TNT show, and he said that it can be argued that BRICS is nothing more than the eastern wing of the global system, perhaps controlled opposition, or at best rebellious provinces within the global system. Um, he says, I, I do think BRICS are trying to become more assertive within the global system. I think they really are in conflict with the U.S. and Europe. The idea, though, that they are counter-globalist is something we will have to wait to see. He, 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 he concludes, he says, I've always said the Duganists, the Eurasianists, are really just counter-imperialists. They're not anti-globalists. They're not anti-imperialists. They're more like counter-globalists, counter-imperialists. Since they want an imperialism or globalism of their own, a globalism where they are the hegemonic force rather than the U.S., in Europe, and then, you know, any thoughts you have on Dugan and, and multipolarity and whatnot, but I've noticed something funny in, in the alternative media and social media, that the multipolar Twitter accounts and Telegram accounts seem to be, and other such accounts, YouTubes, whatever, I I feel like they're being artificially boosted, which is weird. Um, I don't know if you've noticed that. I've had, like, on Telegram, the Geopolitics Live channel reach out to me trying to get me to like cross post and work with them. And I'm kind of like, um, I think, I mean, Dimitri is his name or, or, or something. And he does have a, it's a good show, but it's really got that one really ideology. And I don't want to be affiliated with anyone. You know, I want to be like independent because I don't want to work with geopolitics live and then get boosted because now I'm like affiliated with the Russian camp. And I'm like, no, I'm my own. Uh, I'm, I'm not a number as, as Patrick McGuckin would say, but have you noticed this artificial boost um, by by the whole bricks multipolarity fan people uh, uh, online. Yeah, but you know, Dugan is not like a real thing. I mean, it's just I've talked about this a lot, and it's like nobody knows, nobody knew who he was before his daughter was assassinated in Russia. Uh, I doubt many people knew who he was. It's what he's talking about is incoherent. Uh, I can't make any sense out of it. Okay, I'm not an idiot. I have. I got a perfect score on my verbal, uh, on my like uh, written portion of, of my SAT. I think I can understand text that's written out. I think I can understand ideas. I think I can understand speech. I can't make any sense out of what this guy is talking about. It's 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 just it's total incoherence. Now, you know there is a difference between metaphysics Dugan and geopolitics Dugan, and I'm gonna focus on the geopolitics Dugan. It's just, it's just, it makes no, I mean, he, he wrote like, you know, one of the best ways is to check someone's opinion on a topic that you're well-versed in. So for example, Dugan wrote about Texas recently and it was just, it was just like total incoherent trite. Uh, and I know enough about America to know that this man has no clue what he's talking about. When he's talking about America, he's talking about this rebellion, about, about all over the top zany stuff about how this is the beginning of the end and how this this will that 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 you know the the land-based anti whatever globalist forces are rising up it's just it's total incoherence and he has no rank in russia he does not have 
he's not he's not he has he has no position okay uh he has no his channel is small in russia uh nobody understands he's a meme like nobody understands what he's talking about because he sort of just speaks in this way and i think he does it partially intentionally uh, to be obscure because he's very afraid of the state he used to be extremely anti-kremlin um we're talking about like you know he, he was part of the nazbol party the nazbols are basically uh a party that uh, takes the, the the Nazi flag and they substitute the swastika for the um, hammer and the sickle, but they keep the aesthetic. And so his whole thing, was, and he was with Lomonov, who I referenced before, who was this political radical. So they created this very vehemently anti-Kremlin activist party. And um, he was very anti-Christian as well. His videos of him engaging in well, what a Christian would call satanic uh, rituals with like men on crosses being spung and like cavorting naked people and chalices and recitation of strange poetry. So he was like really into all that edgy stuff. He was talking about UFOs and vampires on TV in the 90s. And um, now he's rebranded as like a Dostoevsky type figure. He's like, everyone thinks he's like this super monarchist orthodox uh traditionalist guy and it's just because he has a white beard and because he speaks with a russian accent and because there's nobody else um what is he talking about when he's talking about eurasianism he's talking about as coherently as i can try and make of it he's saying that the russians share a soul on a spiritual level with like some of these turkic peoples because of the step and he's using Spangler. Spangler was this guy who talked about the souls of collective nations. And so he said there's a Teutonic soul, like a German soul, uh, the Faustian soul, as he called it. There's the Magian soul, which is like the, the Southern Maghrebi uh, Arabic soul. There's the uh, Apollonian soul, which is the Southern European soul. There's the Slavic soul. And so he's, Dugan is saying that the Slavic soul is characterized, it's very similar to the Turkic soul because it's characterized by the steppe, it's characterized by expansiveness, by destruction, by the forces of chaos and fire. And so he's saying that we, it's like a destructive engine that can remake the world in like a bloody type conflagration. And I mean, you really get into this stuff and it's like, it's hard to understand when he's talking about geopolitics, when he's talking about you know politicians or when he's talking about spiritual forces at work in the world and i defy anybody who's actually read fourth political theory like i have to try and make any sense out of it i don't i think this is a, a red herring i think the multipolar bricks thing is happening and the dugan people are just trying to be relevant by hitching their horse to that and saying oh yeah that's 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 sort of what we're talking about as well I don't know what they're talking about other than just like creating a great land empire uh, they, that will oppose the sea powers of the world. So there will be this like totalitarian sort of rigid empire with traditional magical values that will be against the mercantile Athenian 
uh, based sea based spirit of London and the United States or, or, or whatever. And in the United States is at war between the sea based soul of the coastal regions and the landlocked soul. Of, you see what I'm talking about? Like, this is not what politicians are reading. This is not what the, the people at the BRICS forums are quoting. Uh, this is a, a misnomer, a red herring. And, um, Another thing that Dugan gets accused of, or he's just, he's just a lot of people for good or bad, they seem to think that he's like a communist or something like that. And, you know, Dugan was good friends on like a first name basis with many prominent uh, Nazis and fascists in Europe. And I'm not using this as like a slur. I'm just saying that he was friends with de Grel, who was part of unit Charlemagne which was this uh, volunteer force that went into Russia during World War II. And de Grel liked Slavs. He was very pro-Slavic. But, you know, that's the kind of connections this guy has. He's connected with the Benoit and the, the, the French people and the, the, what do you call it, the Gress, the, the sort of the, the, the French new right. His whole idea is like to merge communism and elements of Nazism and elements of orthodoxy. It's, it's, it's like a total mishmash potpourri. And his main idea is that like, we have to be opposed to the sort of materialist, mercantilist, sea-based powers. Like that's it. But in terms of his actual relevance and his ability to comment, accurately on current events uh, man it's 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 yeah, you yeah, should definitely he, look uh, elsewhere he recently tweeted that um america needs a civil war and i'm like um yeah no that, that would play into the, the globalists want america to have a civil war so mr dugan why, why are you saying we need one we, we need to try and avoid one but i i haven't read his books i've read some of his stuff you know some of it my position on dugan has always i don't know enough but I think he he makes you think, but I see what you're saying that sometimes it's, it's contradictory. I don't know what's what he's really trying to say. I've been well, like, for example, he he calls for a new establishment of an order of like occultist KGB monarchist orthodox types. Like that's his latest book or the reprinting of his latest that just came out, and that's his thing. He wants to create a Templar based secret society of spooks. It's like, bro, like they're they're way ahead of you on that. Like they don't need you telling them that, you know, because that's that's what they do. <laughs> like they 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 are occultists. Yeah, are a secret they, society. They are. I mean, I've mentioned this before. When I was in Geneva, um, I visited the Lutz's Trust, originally founded as Lucifer Publishing in 1922, um, and they believe Lucifer is the Christ, and that uh, that they say that this Lucifer figure is here now. They're preparing for his return. Uh, this is a official U United Nations affiliated um, NGO, and I, w I went to one of their meetings. And so, uh, just so people, no one can call me conspiracy theorist. I've got the document. I've actually got it somewhere here in a box um, where it says, you know, it talks about Prometheus and and, and Lucifer. But um, just on Dugan's, yeah, I, I've been meaning to purchase the physical copies of his books uh, and then try to get him on. He does follow the Geopolitics and Empire Twitter account, so he does follow me there. So I'll see if eventually I can talk to him. But you mentioned BRICS. Uh, what's your, you know, you and I both know Yuri Roshka's view on, on BRICS. And I've had other people like on the podcast, Professor William I. Robinson, uh, and he's he's a leftist uh, professor in California. But he says, even he says that it's it's a, it's a sham. You know, well, I, the, the term was coined by uh, 
WEF Young Global Leader uh, together with Goldman Sachs. And then, you know, people like William I. Robinson from the left says that if you look at it like uh, technically, BRICS is it's, it's it's still part of the one global capitalist system. It's not like some alternative. Yeah, yeah, just go down, just go down the list. Like, what are your problems with the current financial global system, right? And then ask yourself, will BRICS address these problems? A Rothschild-owned currency for every single country. Will, will BRICS change that? Uh, what 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 could this thing? You go down the whole list. Of, is it a gold-based currency? No. Uh, are they gonna? You know, you're you're worried about say these crypto coins uh, of a, of a centralized digital currency that they can uh, play around with the rates and make it so that you know they can force you to buy things because it'll they'll give it a negative interest rate right or they can artificially inflate or devalue the coin and they'll have total control they can choose what you're allowed to purchase or not they can deactivate your account for wrong think or wrong speech right and what will will BRICS no BRICS wants to do all that but faster and like more in, in like a slight they, they want to have an orange racing stripe on it you know like that's the difference and then think about the acronym itself what do these countries have in common what does brazil have in common with russia what does india have in common with russia what does south africa south africa is a basket case why are we still pretending that like it's an important player in anything it's these people are you know veering from one artificial crisis political crisis to another it's 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 bizarre uh yeah so i mean and and then another thing is that they, they keep saying that china is this big ally of russia china hasn't done anything to support russia china sells to both sides of this war and there and it mostly abides by the sanctions that uh were put on russia sure uh, there are ways that russians have been able to smuggle in say like drone parts and stuff but um yeah china has done nothing to support russia china has not opened up lines of credit china has not created factories producing ammo and tanks for the russians china has not uh they've done nothing okay they've not provided diplomatic support they haven't recognized the referendum they haven't supported uh, russia uh, about the war uh, if anything, they're looking to reconstruct Ukraine in the aftermath by securing contracts, rebuilding contracts. So it's all just a farce. It's like, well, this this doesn't really exist. Uh, Iran and Russia, Iran, uh, Russia sided with the Gulf states against Iran's claims uh, over a disputed water thing. There's an island that is, you know, uh, Moscow is just an, is just a collection of oligarchs. It's it's a business. It's an LLC. That's it. They don't. You know, like if China can offer them a good deal, they'll make a deal with China. And China increasingly is the same thing. You know, that's why America invested so much into it. They created a new class in China of wealthy oligarchs who do not have any real ties to the national project of China. They send their kids to study in the West. They park their money in the West, which is partially why no one can afford real estate in Canada or in America anymore because these are on the West Coast anymore because these people just buy it all up. Uh, so their money is there. Their kids are there. Uh, ideologically speaking, they're not, you know, hardcore communists. Uh, I've talked to these people. I've talked to their kids. They're just consumers. They're, they're into capitalism. They're into materialism. They're into spending and, and they like Western brands. 
ideologically speaking, there's no difference, no difference whatsoever between the, the under 40 crowd in China and uh, you know the people running things in America. So it's the exact same situation as in the West. And you think that these kids of theirs, when they're sent to top schools in America and, and Britain and wherever, that they're not getting approached by the spooks, that they're not being turned into assets, uh, you know, that they're not coming back home with their heads pumped full of liberal ideology. Like I, I, I studied with Hong Kongese students and then uh, 10 years later, uh, they, these are the people who are riding in Hong Kong and I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. And you look at them and they all have green hair and blue hair and they dress like they're from the West and they're spouting the same rhetoric as from the West. It's like uh, we were talking about the Russian elites. Peskov, I said his son was in the West. Let's, you know, Solovyov, his son is a model in London, uh, a homosexual as well. And this is Mr. Uh, conservative TV radio personality in Russia talking about the war against satanic values. You know, his son is some kind of a twink uh, in London. You go down the list and uh, Putin uh, had family living in the West that studied in like Switzerland that had his ex-wife is married to some French oligarch uh, and they live in Europe as well. Uh, how many of these people had, a whole, uh, for example, Solvyov also had extensive properties in Italy. How many of these people have uh, properties in Miami, you know? And this is just like the stuff that we know that's, and then there were the Panama papers that were leaked. And so you have to wonder, yeah, of course, it's, it's how, how can these people really be against each other when their children are literally hostages, should it come to that in these countries, willing hostages in these countries, their children have adopted the worldview of the supposed enemy, their money is parked in the West. Uh, and when they do actually allow themselves to speak in Russia to the media, everything they say sounds very liberal. It sounds very globalist. It sounds very current year. And the only thing that we have that sort of argues against that is these people, these crazy bloggers, alternative, whatever. Mm. You or call them, You call them uh, what? Uh, Zianon? Zianon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Zianon who claim that ignore all of that there's this secret thing going on there's this hidden thing they're all just faking it it's all a trick to get the west to lower its guard and they're joined they're actually saying the exact same thing as western like spook approved mainstream approved media because they're also portraying the russian elites as sinister and duganist and nazi and whatever why because it justifies this this conflict and the sanctions and whatever and the truth of it is that no, these people are identical. It's it's an it's a spat, it's a squabble, and so both CNN and the mainstream media are basically saying the same thing: that like, wow, Russia is like really serious. China is like a really serious, dastardly scheming Machiavellian five D chess operator that's gonna destroy the current system. CNN says, yeah, they're gonna do that, and that's a good thing. And the, the mainstream media says, yeah, they're gonna do that, and it's a bad thing. But they're basically saying the same thing. And you can see why all of a sudden these alternative blogosphere people are getting pumped up. You can see all of a sudden why they, they you know, they've never had any trouble with PayPal. Mm -hmm. They've never had any trouble. Like they make millions, these people. Where are they getting these millions from? Well, isn't it interesting that they're basically promoting the exact same narrative as the mainstream media, just from a slightly different perspective, just a slightly different flavor? If you start thinking about things that way, a lot of things start becoming clear, I think. 
but hey, I am a conspiracy theorist, so yeah, so, grain of salt. So am I. And it's funny, you know, I was shocked to discover Kim Jong Un of North Korea went to high school in Lausanne, Switzerland, just a hop skip away from where I went to grad school. And one of my um, um, classmates uh, in Geneva was the son of Li Li Baodong, the um, China's uh, represent uh, UN uh, China's ambassador to the UN, and so. Yeah, there's a lot of that stuff going on. Um, the mullahs in Iran, all Western educated, their kids all in the West, right? Same it's, thing. it's convergence, uh, as we started out with. Uh, convergence, that's the name of the game. And we've covered the waterfront. This is a longer than usual um, podcast. But uh, is there anything else that you um, you think is important that, that you haven't brought up to, to mention? Well, yeah, I mean, people like Strelkov and people who take the position of like, whoa, hold on a sec. Uh, I don't want to participate in this artificial conflict where I don't want to artificially pick a side uh, when it, it's it's contrived. It doesn't seem like there's any real ideological divergence here. And it, it seems like all of this is either like a money-making operation or a, some code of some ex an excuse for social engineering or a cull, perhaps. And these are the people who are like the most in the most dangerous position because people don't like to hear this. People like to cheer for a side. People like to think that they're winning. And they will, you know, so a lot of people will say, yeah, we're, we're kicking these globalist Nazis butts. And it makes them happy. It makes them have hope. Uh, makes It justifies their laziness because they can just sort of kick back and watch the, the good guys uh, win every two weeks or whatever, you know? So this whole mentality of, of trying to tell people like, you know, there's nobody going to ride in on a, on a horse to save you, that there's not really a faction that's secretly on your side, um, that actually most of the elite thinks and plans the same way. And you're kind of in the crosshairs and uh, they think of you as a useless eater and they're going to take measures to slowly, if it's in the West, they're going to do it in a soft way. If it's in the East, they're going to, you know, either just in China, show up to your apartment and like throw you in a cell or like turn off, like, like lock you in your, in your apartment. Like they were doing in COVID, like no food, no electricity, just lock someone in their apartment. They're going to do a lot of bad stuff to you. Or in Russia, they're going to send, uh, or in Ukraine, they're going to send you off to the meat grinder. They're going to figure out ways to destroy your family make it so that your women hate you, make it so that you can't have kids, make it so that your kids hate you, sterilize your kids, castrate your kids, ideologically brainwash your kids. They're going to devalue your money. They're going to make it such that you have less and less options, freedom, autonomy, strength. They're going to poison you with vaccines, bad food, vegan stuff, tofu burgers, bugs, bug pizzas. They're going to do all this stuff. They're going to take your car away from you. They're going to take your guns away from you. In most countries, they already have. They're going to make you pay more carbon taxes. Uh, they're going to regulate your breathing and your heart rate soon with the Apple Watch. They're going to send electrical shocks into your collar uh, every time you have a bad thought. And <laughs> and it's like, and no one wants to hear that. They just want to, they want to outsource it. They want to say like, oh, somebody's doing something to save me. Jesus is going to like, this is all part of his plan. You know, it's all there in Revelation. Oh, Putin, substitute for Jesus. Donald Trump, substitute for Jesus as well. And it's like, look, guys, there's only one way out of it. You have to organize. You have to find like-minded people. You have to become stronger. 
you have to figure out what weaknesses you have that they're targeting. Like, are you dependent on, do you have a porn addiction? Do you have a Netflix addiction? Same thing. Do you, are you addicted to Grubhub? Are you like, you know, on some micro level, you have to start taking measures to retake your autonomy. You have to become a stronger person. Are you dependent on the opinions of people around you? Does your wife henpeck you into keeping quiet, even though you know that what's happening is wrong? You know, are you afraid to speak out against literally millions of people being flooded into your country to create a global uh, favela because you're afraid of being called the R word or the N word? It's like, you know, you, we need moral courage. We need pe character courage. We need people with physical strength, mental strength, emotional strength. The entire system is designed to make it so that we cannot organize, we cannot cooperate with one another. Uh, that we are broken individuals uh, and that we are useless and completely skillless. Anyway, so the point is, I think we just have, we have, I, I don't think there's much hope. I think that they're going to succeed and it's going to become the new normal and resistance will just be sort of the can will be kicked down the road again, but it doesn't, it shouldn't change anybody's mm -hmm. like, uh, it, you should still behave in in a way like do what you can as well as all i can say take measures you know do what you can i just don't just don't believe that someone is gonna save you if you mm -hmm. do nothing or just you know believe hard enough like just you gotta no active take, measures i was just gonna say that the active measures like the movie 300 right even though they might they're facing yeah. de death um well uh, just act and live as as if um you're going to win. You know, Imran Khan had a tweet, which I'm forgetting now, but he said it's really the, the, the brave the brave people are the ones fighting when they know defeat is like certain, something to that tune. But, uh, you know, I'm not afraid. I, I don't think you're afraid. We're just, you know, doing what we can. Uh, with Could I? Uh-huh, go ahead. I know I've been talking a lot, but I would just say that the most important thing for people is to completely change the way that they think about things because the way that we think about things limits us it keeps us in a box especially in the west when they use the more softer systems their whole system is predicated on controlling how you think and and this means that you will approach problem solving in a way that they're comfortable with so the entire western conception of politics is wrong this idea of like how elections works, it's wrong. This idea that you should go out and protest, it's wrong. This idea that, uh, you know, the media is supposed to be impartial. No, it's never been that way. It's wrong. This idea, you know, you have to really examine. You can't be like the number one thing you have to do is change your mindset. You have to be able to think in a different way, you know, in a non elite approved way. You cannot think of the world in, in their terms. You cannot think will just act like Martin Luther King or Gandhi. Those people are shown to you as examples for a reason because they know because they were under control. These were, these were elite projects because they want you to re replicate the same behaviors, right? They want you to start yelling something on Facebook, show up to an event like January 6th or the Texas border thing that's going on right now. They want you to make uh, a lot of mistakes. They want you to get in trouble with the law. They want you to, you know, like it's a whole thing. The whole system is designed to get people like cows walking down these corridors that lead to the slaughterhouse. And you have to really, you really have to re-examine politics as you know it. What is it really about? What is democracy about? A lot of people, they're like, oh, I'm really pro-democracy, but what's happening now? I'm not sure I'm for it. Or like, I'm really pro-liberalism. It's like, but this is liberalism. This, this isn't an aberration. It's like, 
you know, communists in the Soviet Union would be like, you know, I'm, I'm definitely a communist, but you know, these, these gulags, I'm not so sure about that. It's like every single communist state has had gulags. It's, it's part of it. You can't not have it. You know, it's like, you can't everything. It's, it's about reeducating the population. So you can't have uh, communism without centers for reeducating adults through pain and starvation and deprivation and isolation. That's, that's part and parcel. In fact, the gulag is like the central component. And so you can't, fight against the current world order and still believe in 90% of what you're supposed to believe. You really have to re-examine your beliefs about democracy, about liberalism, about the, you know, the fact that we're all the same, that men and women are completely equal, that everyone has uh, all this, all these canards and all this Hollywood stuff. You, you got to be like, why are the elites teaching me to read Orwell? You know, why are the elites telling me all the, why are they teaching me about Gandhi and Martin Luther King? You know, why are they doing this? And then I'm using, why are they showing me hunger games? And then I'm going out in the streets and I'm pretending that I'm Gandhi or I'm in hunger games or, you know, you're, you have to understand that you're, you're part, you're, you're like, you're falling for the trap. If you're using their media, their worldview, their politics, uh, their values and morals to as as a frame for your own opposition. It's like you know you've already lost. You've already accepted their worldview. Uh, so that's what I would say. That would be my concluding uh, remark. We have to start at the very inside ourselves. We really have to re-examine our worldview. Anyway, that's it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good stuff. And I, I just one more question. Just the theme of your Substack uh, again, SlavlandChronicles.substack.com. And I, I, you know, I, I like video games, but I just haven't been able to play lately. But I was a big fan of. I, I really like the post-apocalyptic stuff, like Fallout uh, and uh, the Stalker, the, the Russian Stalker games. Just uh, and then recently, I've downloaded Atomic Heart, uh, the Russian um, game, and it, it really has that feeling. Playing that game, it, it felt like both in that world. You're like it's technocracy. It's it's both communism and um technocracy but just any thoughts uh, uh, on the the video games stalker uh have you played that or <laughs> well i i yeah i played when i was really really young but uh i then i came back to it to examine the lore and i was really blown away by the lore and i was like okay i have to make this the aesthetic of the blog and the concept is uh that there's this Chernobyl, it's like an alternative timeline. There's a, the Chernobyl was this experiment and it's created something called the zone. And in the zone, there's a lot of weird stuff going on, strange creatures, almost magic type stuff. And there's factions within the zone who are trying to use the zone for different reasons. And so it's a little bit like, uh, you know, a lot of these video games do explore political questions. They explore uh, interesting conspiracy theories and video games for a long time were not really that regulated. And so you, a lot of interesting ideas and interesting people would be able, would be able to get their ideas expressed through video games. And now of course it's, they figured that out and they really clamped down on it, but there was a golden period. And this is one of those crazy, another one is Deus Ex. I don't know if you've heard about that, but it's like this super conspiracy game about, world government and there are some very eerie predictions that that game made about our future that do seem like they're coming to pass like fake contagions uh that sort of thing I think so also uh, on metal some level gear metal gear i think yeah, also yeah. has some of that stuff 
Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so the clever people are able to figure some of this stuff out and they are able to express some of these ideas in media. And it's important that we have these reference points so that I could say, hey, man, it's like it's like a Metal Gear Solid, it's like Kojima. And you're like, oh, yeah, 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 for sure. Or, oh, it's it's like Deus Ex said. And you're like, yeah, that's true that they did say that in Deus Ex. So it's, it makes it easier to explain some concepts. And the thing is, is that a lot of these games, or if you can understand the problem and you're not caught in the frame of it's 2024 and I'm just a little bit to the right or to, 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 you know, I'm just a little bit different from the mainstream. I think things should go a little bit slower. Like your Tucker Carlson, for example, you know, your Tucker Carlson saying, I'm all for gay marriage. All reasonable people are for gay marriage. You know, I'm all for 90% of what the regime does. I just don't think that, you know, we should be torturing political prisoners or I don't think we should be uh, fighting in this war in Russia. And it's like, you know, that's good. That's good enough. I mean, he's he's out there. That's that's the radical fringe of what's allowed in discourse. But you really do have to allow yourself, maybe not publicly, maybe not on Facebook, but just even within your own mind to be able to go and think of things in a totally different frame. For me, it's occultism and understanding that a lot of the stuff that we refer to as psychology or social engineering or science a lot of it has its origins in occult texts, most notoriously in the Kabbalah. And so when I look at it this way and I see the elites as a closed society uh, that keeps secrets, that seems to be antagonistic to the public, that seems to be doing things that make no sense, like they're not designed even to maximize economic efficiency. Sometimes it seems like they're taking a hit to their profits with this behavior uh, why are they exact? Why exactly are they so thoroughly destroying the West when the West made them so rich? You know why? Why are they doing all these things? And then, and and because I'm able to think a little bit more broadly, because I'm able to lean on these fantasy concepts or occult concepts, some of them which are explored in video games, I'm able to be like, well, what if there's a different agenda here? What if there's, you know, what if a lot of the stuff like the acquisition of money and power and and these wars, they're a means to an end, not an end in and of itself. And then you read these like religious texts and you're like, oh, well, that's interesting. They, they seem to be really into this. They seem to have an end goal. It seems to be occultic in nature. And a lot of people are nowadays materialists, nominalists. They don't believe in non-material reality. And they think that that makes them cultured and intelligent and educated. And they think that the elite believes this as well. I think all evidence points to the contrary, mm -hmm. that the elites are into occultism. We mentioned uh, Hermann Greff, notorious Kabbalist, uh, number one propagandist in Russia, Vladimir Shapiro uh, Solovyov, literally sells Kabbalah uh, introduction courses. He sees himself as uh, literally a, a prophetic figure within the Kabbalah tradition. You go down the list uh, of people and they all seem to have occult views, Prigozhin, was into Kabbalah and masonry. He's the mercenary captain that was assassinated. Uh, there's stories about, for example, the I wrote about this, the Moscow Torah reading circle of prominent politicians, many of whom are in office now. And what they would do is they would get together under the supervision of a Chabad rabbi and they would read interpretations of the Torah. That's what the Kabbalah is. It's interpretations of the Torah, right? And it's prominent names, uh, bankers, people who you think are respectable people, not some crazy lunatic in his underwear on the internet screaming into a microphone. No, 
we have proof that these people we have epstein island with its bizarre temple uh everywhere you look you see these people engaging in these what what would seem to be primitive superstitions so who is really the more enlightened and uh, educated person the the one who repeats again what school has taught them what the media has taught them that these things don't exist these non-material realities are a figment of an imagination uh that's the mainstream view and you claim to be anti-mainstream and you claim that you're, you're, you're sort of seeing past the lies being foisted on you by the mainstream media and yet you wholeheartedly embrace nominalism even though it's a new idea and right around the same time that a lot of the social engineering started they started pushing this hardcore atheism like to the point that it doesn't even make sense that level of hardcore and you see that the elite don't seem to believe it and it, it doesn't cause a little bit of cognitive dissonance in you so i would encourage people to actually see things in a more occult way sort of what is psychology uh if not you know there's elements of occult in it obviously it's like they, they take a lot of these concepts and they just sort of give it a clinical name it doesn't really change anything look at mass psychology mass manipulation social engineering techniques there's spells for example how to trigger like mass hysteria and you're like wow that 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 that's identical to what they did with covid this seems like just like a a how to guide to like manipulate people you know so again i would encourage thinking outside the box stop thinking like a 90s man or like a or someone who shares 90% of what he's supposed to with the media, but, oh, you know, the lockdowns were just a little bit too much. Or, oh, yeah, well, well this war is, is, is too much. No, if you have, if you're experiencing at least some doubt or cognitive dissonance, a splinter in your mind is caused by at least some of the events that have transpired over the last 10 years, and you're starting to use that to re-examine everything. You know, look into 9-11, look into JFK, look into the moon landing, look into alternative science look into louis pasteur virology do it keep going like <laughs> embrace an entirely different way of thinking about the world and once people do then we can start talking about solutions because in the current paradigm no way it's not going to work even if i were to gather a million if i had a million strong blog a million protesters and we all went into maidan or, or red square or, or whatever in dc nothing would change we have to stop thinking in these terms you know, we re that's the main thing. We got to get people thinking a, a little bit more deeply about stuff. Sorry, I ranted. I've I've said enough. <laughs> no, that's 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 me. the point of of this great um, chat. Uh, just on the last thing, though, I do have to take issue. I agree, looking at everything, but um, I, I I'm just not going uh, with the whole flat Earth thing or the contagion and infection. Oh God, no! Con no, the, no. The, the, that, the people who say that. Um, infectious disease doesn't exist um uh because i'm a, i i'm sick right now i was with a group of people uh and then a bunch of us get sick anyways that's a, a topic for another time but we'll talk about flat earth next time for sure <laughs> actually <laughs> I, I, I just realized uh, i'm going to anarchapulco in acapulco soon and a bunch of the people the the david weiss i think is going to be speaking there the flat earth dude and there's a whole bunch of flat earth people uh attending but uh, anyways tell us where we can best um go to find your work uh, and support your uh writing substack slavland chronicles that's s-l-a-v land chronicles and uh i go by rurik skywalker i blog pretty much every day and uh you should all sign up to be paid patrons i call them stalkers that's from that video game 
And uh, there's some information there that I've never, ever, ever seen translated into English and theories and explanations of who the Soviet elite were, who the current elite are. You just can't find anywhere. I mean, it's, it's, there's a complete dearth of information about the ruling class in Russia, about the events of the 90s and the late Soviet Union. I have an essay series I really recommend to people uh, where I sort of chart the relationship between Zionism and communism in the USSR and how it very accurately uh, explains the development of the USSR and its eventual collapse. How basically there was two main ideological camps, Zionism and communism, and this came to be Trotskyism and Stalinism. So start with that. Uh, it's sort of very in-depth stuff, uh, conspiracies like... Um, murders of journalists and uh, what really happened and uh, that sort of thing. I think you guys would enjoy it if you enjoy similar content. Thank you so much for having me and for uh, listening to my long-winded rambles. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find geopolitics and empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.